Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Sapiniak. Hey, Kit. Hey, Jason. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. As you do every week, we're so glad that you could join us. Remember, if you ever miss an episode, you can find all of them at mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. And you can also catch us on our YouTube channel. Jason, who are you speaking with this week? Uh, Father Carter Griffin. He is the author of Cross-Examined Catholic Responses to the World's Questions. He wrote this book because he is a formator of young priests at the St. John Paul II Seminary and wants to equip them and prepare them to give reasons for the hope that is within us and do it so with gentleness and reverence, as it says in 1 Peter 3.15. So we'll talk with him about that and why he wrote this book and what relevance apologetics and, and being prepared and principled plays in fostering civic discourse and civil discourse in public life. Sounds like it'll be really important for, uh, very useful, I should say, for some of these upcoming maybe Christmas gatherings with family or friends when we're undoubtedly going to get some of those tough questions, whether it's on the maybe more theological or the political, you know, and yeah, being able to give that witness, being prepared, not feeling ill-equipped to actually be able to give a response and in a civil way. Sounds like a great topic. Remember everyone, if you ever have an idea for a conversation, send me an email with your ideas. The email address is show at mncatholic.org, or you can just leave us a comment on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. I will be back at the end of the program with this week's action item. I'm now joined on the Bridge Builder by Father Carter Griffin. He is a priest of the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C., a graduate of Princeton University, and a former line officer in the United States Navy. He obtained his doctorate in theology from the Pontifical University of the Holy Cross in Rome. After serving at St. Peter's Parish on Capitol Hill, in 2011, he was assigned to the newly established St. John Paul II Seminary in Washington, D.C., where he now serves as rector. He is the author of Cross-Examined, Catholic Responses to the World's Questions, and we brought him on the program today to share a little bit more about that book and apologetics more generally and tackling tough questions in the public square. Father Griffin, great to speak with you. Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, first of all, I got to ask, you know, trolling through the local Catholic bookstore, there's so many books of apologetics out there. What prompted you to write this one? What niche do you think it fills? You know, I didn't start out uh, wanting to write a book. I started out wanting to form seminarians in this important area of apologetics. But what I really wanted was something that would help them not just know the church's teaching, but also know what people are saying against the church's teaching, because that's really where the, what they're going to be encountering, you know, in their, in their parish assignments and, and later on in the priesthood. So I looked around for that, that kind of a book for contemporary issues, couldn't find one, started to do my own um, kind of for the seminarians. We do maybe three or four a semester. And over time, these built up and a lot of people just said, you know, I think others could find this helpful as well. So that's sort of the genesis of the, of the book. There are outstanding apologetics resources out there. And we, in fact, I really believe we live in sort of a golden age of apologetics. Some of the great minds out there right now have been helping us to understand the rational basis for our faith. So I don't consider this book to be in, 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 the, in the same league as them, but it does offer a certain kind of approach to it that I, at least I find very helpful. Well, I'm, I'm really intrigued that you connected this to seminarian formation because they get these questions all the time and your book deals with questions that haven't been on the horizon very long, uh, gender dysphoria and the transgender question, for example, but also basic questions of the faith that we hear about um, perhaps from Protestants or others. 
but it, it, you know, I like to use alliteration and thinking of the old line, preparation prevents poor performance. So we're preparing seminarians and apologetics, but it also brings to mind, you know, 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to provide the reasons for the hope that is in you. And so this is not just a, a technical trade, the world of apologetics, but it's really something all Catholics should practice. I mean, people need to know that what we believe is not just kind of pulled out of a hat. It's not a kind of an irrational sort of close your ears, you know, close your eyes to any opposing arguments uh, approach. I mean, ours is one that is vibrantly open to what is true. And our desire for what is true includes our, the use of our reason. You know, I think another really important reason for everyone studying apologetics, it kind of bolsters our own faith in what we believe. I mean, it means that we've actually taken seriously those who disagree with us. We've also taken seriously the arguments for and against different teachings. And, and I think that there is a beautiful integrity of the Catholic faith that comes out in a particular way when you study apologetics. You just see how everything kind of fits together in this wonderful whole. Uh, and then, and the more you grow, you know, in this area of the faith, I mean, suddenly, you're, you know, sort of rising tide floats all boats, suddenly you realize a little bit more about this other area of the faith. And, and, and that in itself is a kind of meta apologetics, where you kind of see the whole thing fitting together and in a rational whole. I think an important point you make in the book is that apologetics, far from being, you know, rigid or dogmatic or creating more division, actually can be a bridge to better understanding, empathy, clear up more misconceptions, biases. I thought that that was a really important point. There are a lot of misunderstandings. I mean, I used to have, I'm a convert and I used to have a lot of these prejudices. So I'm particularly sensitive to this fact. People out there thinking that, you know, Catholics, the, the standard stuff, you know, that we worship Mary and that we, you know, that we hate gay people. And I mean, whatever, whatever the thing is on sort of the mm -hmm. left or the right or the Protestant or the rationalists, whatever, that there are a lot of misunderstandings out there. I have this quote, I just wrote it down here because I love it from Fulton Sheen. He says, there are not over 100 people in the United States who hate the Catholic Church. There are millions, however, who hate what they wrongly believe to be the Catholic Church. And I just think that nails it. And, and so the more informed we are about our faith and about how to respond to some of these misconceptions and prejudices, the better off we'll be, we'll be able to, you know, to, to respond to them. I also think that some of the harsh and kind of shrill division that we are experiencing today is caused not because people are engaging each other and realizing that they disagree with each other, but because they're not engaging with each other at all, you know? And so it, when we're able to kind of thoughtfully articulate the church's position, but also to respect somebody who disagrees with us and acknowledge the fact that we disagree, I believe that that ends up in a more human and unified approach than this idea of just like everyone going off into their own echo chambers and talking about how much they hate the other side, you know? And so I think this is a very respectful way uh, to go about that, which I think in the end will be far more unifying, even though it actually means us coming together and disagreeing. How we engage the public debate and how we engage the public arena matters these days almost as much as what we say, because sometimes the messenger is the medium yeah. more so than the message. Apologetics, far from being periphery to conversations of public import, actually is really, really important because it, it helps us be a better witness and it gives more credibility to the messenger. And that's one of the big challenges we have in the public arena today is that our messengers are tainted and it makes getting the message across more difficult. I know, I think that's exactly right. And, but, but you also are indirectly making another point, which is that this can't be a kind of skill set in isolation of a larger life, you know, a, a, an mm -hmm. effort and a desire to live the moral teachings of the church to take seriously the full gamut of, of Catholic teachings and not just the ones that we find convenient. And if we're not doing that, then we're obviously not going to be that effective of an apologist. 
uh, or at least not as effective as, as, as we could be. So this is, I think, an important part of that because our use of the mind is something that the Catholic Church has always taken very seriously. And the church is never afraid of the truth. The church is never afraid of asking questions. And I think those all need to be out there. But at the same time, having that personal witness of faith is, is beautiful, you know, and, and the moral and the moral example that we give. Some of our longtime listeners might be going, well, what does, you know, apologetics have to do with uh, being a bridge builder in the public arena? And we've touched on a little bit of that. But I think it's worth pointing out and reminding people, again, that political questions, even at what level we put the speed limit uh, on the roads are ultimately moral questions. How do we create a safe public safety and transport system, for example. Often political questions really aren't about the particular policy, but they speak to something deeper. Do you think that's an effective tool in apologetics is to try to identify what perhaps the deeper issue is? I mean, I think it's an extremely effective way. It won't work all the time, either because the subject matter doesn't really lend itself as easily or because the interlocutors maybe are not um, willing or able to engage in that kind of a conversation. But I think more often than not, and certainly more often than I think a lot of people think, such a conversation can be really fruitful. And I, I think a lot of people assume, this is another area where apologetics can be helpful, I think a lot of people assume that if you start talking about moral principles, uh, and especially in kind of the public arena, in the, in the public square, so to speak, that you automatically are either, you know, crossing over between the church state divide, you know, or something like that, or it's going to be an irrational kind of conversation because you're going to be speaking from very different principles. And I think that at least in our culture, where most people have been formed to some extent in a kind of a larger Christian narrative, there are far more things in common that we have than we might expect. I mean, even those who disagree with us vehemently on the question of marriage or something like that, you know, same-sex marriage or something like that, a lot of the principles that they are using to advance that argument are actually deeply Christian principles, mm -hmm. even though they're maybe, we believe they're misapplied and so on and so forth. But so if we can get underneath the topic sometimes, and obviously you're talking about things a lot less controversial than same-sex marriage, but, you know, sometimes these policies are, are, seem to have very little to do with religion or with, with, with ethics. But in fact, you start boiling them down, you get to some of these basic principles that I think we can talk about. And apologetics, you know, sometimes apologetics has a lot to do with using, for example, scripture to understand more deeply the church's teaching on purgatory, you know. But sometimes apologetics uses sort of revelation very little. I mean, the rational defense of the church's teaching on, you know, divorce or contraception or physician-assisted suicide or whatever it might be, Oftentimes, these are very neurologic and difficult issues, but a lot of what the church teaches is not simply drawn from scripture or from, from tradition, um, but it's actually drawn from the realm of reason. And mm -hmm. that, we believe, in principle, is, is accessible to everybody, regardless of what your religious beliefs are. So I think apologetics also helps open up that world of, of kind of apologetics, of, of, of ethics, that does not rely exclusively upon uh, the facts of revelation. Yeah, we used to talk a lot about the preambula fide. That's right, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. These sort of first things that could be known even outside of uh, revelation and the idea that belief in God is just simply more rational yeah. than not believing in God's existence. So in the book, Cross-Examined, at the beginning, pull this passage from 2 Timothy, and it's about the point when, and there will be a time when people will no longer tolerate sound doctrine. And certainly it seems that we might be living in one of those times. Right. So if, if that's the case, and, and so many people just seem to see what they want to see, regardless of facts, in that environment, what's the point of apologetics? How often you hear about somebody, somebody's vocation story, I see a, a conversion story, beginning by you know, hearing a snippet of a conversation on a talk show like this. And there's some, and you know, how is it that that begins kind of the small spark 
that then kind of ignites into flame what happens with their conversion. And I think the reason, and you you said it and before we started the show, you said, well, there, it, the, the truth has a power unto itself, you know, or words to that effect, that, that there is something compelling about the truth itself. And I think just having the conversation itself will often be an occasion of grace for somebody. And so I think that that's at least one, one part of the answer is just having some confidence that by investigating these things and by, by speaking honestly um, and, and having the conversation with somebody of goodwill, that the truth will out. Um, I also think that we might sometimes underestimate the desire and the capacity of people today to have these kind of conversations. When you sort of flip on the TV or the equivalent on the internet, you just sort of see the news feed or whatever, because there is such a, a kind of cacophony out there, um, and it's seemingly a kind of an irrational sort of, sh again, shrill sound to everything, it, we assume that everyone likes that and is, and is sort of is, and is into that, isn't contributing to that. But I, my experience is that a lot of people are more than willing to have a kind of a deep conversation about things, um, even if at the end of the day, we still disagree, um, a, a respectful conversation. And I think what we need to be able to do as Christians is not only provide opportunities for that, but also provide, be, a, be able to engage in those. And I think apologetics can go a long way. And even if, even if we don't finally come to an agreement about a certain issue, I think what we will have done is increased the kind of the, the rational, you know, kind of quotient, you know, of the atmosphere, you know, the, and raise the temperature just a little bit uh, in those conversations. So I think we need to be prepared to do that. And I think apologetics can be an important part of that. I think you highlighted a really important point that so many folks are stuck in the tyranny of the present. And what I mean by that is that this thinking that a person who we encounter, their views are fixed, yeah. uh, or that the political landscape is fixed at this moment, and it's not going to change. But if we just reflect on our own lives, think of how differently we perceive or look at particular issues or challenges or things just very differently than we did 5, 10, 15, especially even 20 years ago. And, and it's a helpful reminder to not get stuck in this tyranny of the present, but have a hope, have real Christian hope about the capacity of others and their openness to truth. And I think that's what you're really unpacking for us here. And to kind of have a supernatural outlook as we do it. And what I mean mm -hmm. by that is, is, is not only have, bring the confidence and that this can be a moment of grace for them, but also not try to judge too, too harshly or too quickly the results, right? Oftentimes people maybe in the kind of the heat of a discussion don't, don't um, maybe make a big change of mind or change of heart. But I mean, very often people later on will think back and they say, mm -hmm. you know, that actually was a pretty good point he made. You know, maybe I need to look into that a little bit more. And, and for us too, like oftentimes our pride gets in the way, you know, and then later on we're like, gosh, that, that was a good point. I wonder, <laughs> I wonder how I, you know, how that would fit into the church's understanding of the human mm -hmm. person, or whatever it might be. So I think having some confidence that, that good can come out of it, even if apparently it doesn't seem to produce a lot of fruit. Are people really relativists? And what I mean by that is, you know, that's sort of the, the pose that a lot of people want to have is, you know, to be, you know, sort of debonair nihilists or relativists or something like that. But in my experience, at least in practice, is that people aren't relativists at all and embrace really substantive moral positions on a whole array of questions. And the real relativists out there are a few. And I think the implication of that is that we need to have substantive debates on serious issues and get at the truth of things. Well, and especially because I think not only are they not relativists, but oftentimes their firmly held views border on the intolerant, I think, you know, it, despite kind of the veneer of tolerance oftentimes, mm -hmm. and, and we see that sometimes in the questions of religious liberty and things. So if we're not out there kind of engaging in those conversations, then 
I think the conversations will still happen. They will just happen without us. So I think really being confident that, yeah, I, I don't think that people are just sort of live and let live in general. I think people have, have views and they have, they have opinions and, and they should, you know, um, but if we're not contributing kind of what we can contribute to those conversations, then we shouldn't be surprised when kind of people come up with all kinds of crazy ideas, you know, I mean, we're supposed to be injecting a kind of an element of reason and of confidence and of, um, and, and also a uh, kind of broadening out from the, from the purely visible empirical material world, you know, the, the, the life of the senses that everyone sort of seems to live by and sort of hopefully giving a kind of a broader and more spiritual view. Um, and, and a lot of people I think will, will instinctively respond to that because I think, I think a lot of folks are looking for that today. There's so much toxicity on social media and over Thanksgiving dinner. And, and a lot of people have come to the conclusion that you really can't be a good interlocutor with someone who doesn't share your basic premises. But I, I think, you know, what you're saying, and it seems to me arguing is that we have to take that on a case by case basis and that we've got to have a little bit more hope. How would you respond to that claim that you really can't engage people productively if they don't share your premises? But if that's the case, what do we do about those folks? How do we respond to them? How do we encounter them? You know what I found it helpful? Uh, I've, I've given a number of talks on, on gender issues uh, and kind of, a, kind of a way that I approach it. The way that I typically approach it is to talk about the so-called two worldviews. That's what I call it anyway. And so the two worldviews, and one of them being the more classical worldview, the Aristotelian kind of realist worldview, and then the other one being this kind of more modern, fluid, you know, everything, deconstructions, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, everything is mm -hmm. up for grabs kind of worldview. And... Um, so the whole talk, and I, I, the last maybe, if it's a, let's say it's a 45 minute talk, maybe I, I don't get to gender until about minute 30, you know, because the first 30 minutes, I'm just talking about how different these worldviews are so that we know what, what we're, what we know those two different worldviews. And then at the end, we can say, and now given the classical worldview, this obviously makes a lot of sense, what we teach and what we believe about gender. I have had people who are themselves transgendered in those audiences and they find it very, very helpful. And they're very grateful for the talk. They, they say at the end, obviously they disagree. But mm -hmm. and they, they don't even necessarily agree with my how I describe the other sort of the other worldview. They would maybe take yeah. exceptions to that. But just the idea of saying like we are approaching this from two different perspectives and people of good faith can come to different conclusions based upon these two different worldviews, which doesn't mean that we sort of give up and say, well, I guess we're just living these two different universes. No. But what it means is that so often we're kind of arguing letter E and F and G, but we, but really we need to be talking about A, B, and C, you know, and like looking at that worldview and say, let's, let's talk about, you know, because I think something you said a moment ago, which is that, you know, there are not many relative relativists out there. I also think that once people start addressing the presuppositions of their worldview, there aren't a lot of actual sort of, you know, fluid, you know, fluid uh, metaphysical people out there. I mean, I think most people actually do believe that things are real, that there's something out there that I can, I can know, that together we can pursue the truth. All these things that are characteristics of the classical worldview, I think a lot of people still hold to that. And they just sort of subscribe to this other one kind of by default because it's, it's never been questioned. So that seems to be a far more fruitful and frankly, kind of less explosive, you know, a, a way to approach the Thanksgiving dinner <laughs> kind of conversation. Uh, let's talk about some of our basic suppositions here. And that can be a very interesting and pretty calm conversation, I think. Yeah. So instead of avoiding the conversation with someone who doesn't share your premises, right. go to the premises themselves. Yeah. Um, it, you know, do things have a nature? Are they ordered towards certain ends or is reality just plastic? Exactly. Um, and if we, we start on that terrain, then we might have a, a productive conversation. That's an excellent point. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops is promoting, I think, a really important campaign called Civilize It, uh, based on Pope Francis's call for a better kind of politics. 
What is the connection between being prepared and principled and civility in conversation? You know, I think civility has to be more than just good manners. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that's where I think a lot of people dismiss that kind of talk to say, well, I mean, you know, when, when we're talking about these neuralgic issues or these very difficult issues where people's lives are at stake, our understanding of the whole per human person or the family, I, how can I possibly be polite in that sort of moment, right? That's not what's, and I don't think that that's really what the Holy Father or the bishops are getting at when they're talking about civility in that case. I mean, it's sort of a part of it, I suppose. There's no reason to be rude, um, but it's not primarily about that. What it primarily is, is do I myself respect this other person despite the fact that we may disagree on almost everything, at least you know, on the table before us? Um, do I respect them deeply as a son or daughter of God made in the image and likeness of God? And if I do, then I'm going to behave to that person differently. I just am. They may not reciprocate that, but they're far more likely to reciprocate that when I have respected them in that way. So I think what, it, what it's really getting at is sort of that basic level of, of, of deep respect that we as Catholics certainly believe that we should exercise towards all human beings, and then letting that overflow into our own um, into our own words and our own thoughts. I give it a kind of an, an analogy. I was talking to the seminarians the other day about the idea of fraternal correction and how it's in the scriptures and how, how we're supposed to exercise that. And one of the points that I made, and I believe this very strongly, is that if they have something that they need to say to their brother, but they first bring it to prayer and they're kind of consult on it and they really have really sort of taken it seriously, they are gonna pursue, they're gonna speak that fraternal correction in a way that's very, it's just different, right? If, if I really do want to help you by saying this thing to you, and I'm doing this for your sake, not for mine, you can't help it, but the words are going to come out differently. And I think the same thing is true in our civil discourse, that if we actually have a real respect for, the, for that other person, then how we say what we need to say, even when it's difficult for them to hear, it's going to be different. Uh, and I think that's, that's true civility. And thinking about it, perhaps in terms of a work of mercy, I mean, instructing, you know, the, the, the terminology is instructing the ignorant, which sounds a little presumptuous, but, but that's really what we're getting at is that this is an act of mercy and charity, precisely because we will the authentic good of the other. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think we can, we can easily forget that because we're sort of concerned about being presumptuous. Yeah, so I, I just think acknowledging the fact that we've been given the great blessing of being Catholics and, and having... Um, access to an understanding of the truth, which I think is a lot um, perhaps deeper than, than many people have had access to, and kind of acknowledging that, that we have a great responsibility uh, to try to share that as best we can to the best of our ability. So I'm, I've read your book, Father Griffin. I'm excited. I'm ready to do apologetics, but how do I know I'm fully prepared? Uh, what, what advice do you give people who want to, they got the gumption to take on, yeah. maybe be a little bit more proactive in their defense of the faith, but how do they know they're quite ready? They've graduated from apologetics boot camp and they're ready to go. What advice would you give to people starting out or bringing some zeal to their uh, apostolic activity? Yeah, well, I think a couple of things. Uh, you know, the first one is uh, we, we have to go into this with humility. Um, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the quote from 1 Peter 3.15 and uh, the hope that is in you, yet do it, yet do it with gentleness and reverence, you know, is, the, is, is what, what St. Peter says at the end of that famous quote. And so learning, I think, just knowing that if we, if we approach these different difficult topics with a sense of gentleness and reverence, 
and also with a sense of humility, um, knowing that we're not going to have all the answers. If we go in there and just kind of sort of shoot down anything that looks suspicious, you know, <laughs> that's it's not going to go well. So I think having the humility to say, I don't know in a conversation will itself give you the confidence to enter into a conversation and to go to somebody and have an intellectually honest conversation where you get to the point you're like yeah that's a great point i've never heard that argument against the church's teaching on purgatory uh let me look into it let's let's continue this great conversation later on and as long as you know you can do that i think that will help also i find that like our own interest is one of the best spurs for our own intellectual development so if you're interested in why the church teaches about you know, something about, you know, whatever the uh, confession, you know, why, why do we, why do we have to go to a man for confession or a priest? Um, well, then look into it, you know, and, and look into that particular topic and answer that question in your own mind to set to your own satisfaction. And I think that'll be the best, because then you will have really assimilated and integrated this. If you're just kind of spouting out words that you've learned from a book like Cross-Examined or some other book, that's not really going to necessarily be the best thing for them. Um, it has to become part of who we are so that we're saying it in our own words with our own experience. Um, so I think all of those are different ways. There's certainly no, you never get to the end. There's always, you're always learning new things. Um, and you kind of go into this with this exciting kind of approach of like, I'd like to learn more about the truth. Um, and I'd, I'd love to share, share that with my friends, you know, and my family members, my loved ones. Uh, and I think that's a great attitude with which to approach apologetics. Father Griffin, I got one more question for you. Uh, you've done a great job of unpacking some difficult moral questions and, and cross-examined. But what do you see uh, for volume two? What moral questions do you think you might need to address when volume two of Cross-Examine comes out? What's on the horizon? Is it CRISPR technology, human genomes? I know. Uh, you know, vaccine passports. What's, what, what's, what's coming on the horizon on difficult moral questions? You know, I think we're, we're going to have, I was just having a conversation with some priest friends of mine about um, the, the metaverse, you know, that's coming mm -hmm. up and if, um, if they're able to pull that off and everyone really does have kind of their, their real life, you know, sort of in that digital world, and this is the kind of the life out here is what we use just to kind of, you know, feed that and support that. I think that opens up all kinds of very important and interesting questions about morality in the metaverse. You know, you do, does, does somebody go to confession for what they do? You have in, could you have confessions in the metaverse? I mean, I, I think no to that, but, um, you know, uh, the, um, yeah, I mean, just what what is what does life look like, and when so much has been artificially uh, kind of uh, expanded for us, you know, with AR, VR. I mean, I in some ways I think that's going to be a greater revolution than the internet itself um, in our lives. And so I think trying to work through that, and then yeah, you just mentioned a couple of the other things that you know that are that are coming up. But it's not just the technological things either. I mean, I think just deeper questions arise about different church teachings, um, dogmatic teachings. I mean, I think maybe getting into something about the different um, about the human nature of Christ. And, and, you know, and, and I think there are a lot of, a lot of implicit Arians out there who sort of think that Jesus was a really good man, but sort of, you know, a man, uh, mm -hmm. not, not God, um, that, that sort of thing too. So trying to keep, you know, there are three sections to this is kind of like the church and morality and, um, kind of God and eternity, you know, so like looking at these different areas and trying not to, because there's a tendency to sort of fall all, all into the moral issues. Because that's what we first think of when we think about the, 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 the controversial issues. So trying to keep a kind of a broader base. But I'm not looking at a volume two right now. I'm just trying to, uh, try, try to do my job as rector of a seminary. But I, I did have fun writing this one. And so who knows? There are topics that come up and maybe there'll be a volume two someday. Well, I've been encouraged by this conversation and a uh, wholehearted encouragement to think about volume two. The book is Cross-Examine. The author is Father Carter Griffin, rector of the John Paul II Seminary in Washington, D.C. Thanks so much for coming on the Bridge Builder program today. Great joy to be with you. Thank you. And we'll be back in a moment with this week's Practical Action Item.
Welcome back to the Bridge Builder Program, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, and now it's time to jump into this week's practical action item. Kit, what do you have for us this week? Yeah, so as Father Griffin was talking about, you know, responding to people's common objections on a number of issues, this week's action item really ties in with that, kind of continuing those civil conversations, civil discussions. This week, we want all of our listeners to take the Civilize It pledge. It's a pledge through the USCCB. In taking that pledge, you're going to commit to speaking and acting with charity, clarity, and then to finding creative solutions with those who might disagree with you. It's really a great thing, a practical item that you can do ahead of some of those Christmas get-togethers with friends and family. Maybe you've already taken the pledge, so it might be just a good opportunity to sort of renew that commitment and further prepare yourself for having civilized conversations. So you can find further resources or take the pledge for the first time by going to civilizeit.org. Thank you everyone who's tuned in again this week. If you're listening on the radio, remember you can also catch us on your favorite podcast app and on our YouTube channel for all of our extended conversations. Not everything always fits into 30 minutes. When you're there, make sure to click subscribe and then you will always be notified of our latest episodes. Leave us a comment or send us a question. The email is show at mncatholic.org and find any of our past episodes at mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest and a practical way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins and for, and for Kit Sapiniak of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, God bless your day and have a wonderful holiday season.